Over 50 vessels attacked by Houthi rebels in the Red Sea. Thousands of ships diverted via the Cape of Good Hope and billions of dollars of trade disrupted in the Red Sea crisis. Hi, this is Marcus Hand from Sea Trade Maritime News with our latest episode of Chat About Geopolitics and Trade podcast series. The crisis that has developed in the Red Sea since mid-November seemed to come out of nowhere and illustrates the highly unpredictable nature of geopolitical impact on the shipping industry. Now, normally in our monthly chat about geopolitics and trade, Punit Osa, founder of Maritime NXT, interviews leading industry executives about their experiences related to geopolitics and shipping. But today we thought we'd turn the tables and ask Punit for his expert insights on what is happening in the Red Sea and Yemen. Over the next 30 minutes or so, you will hear about the background to the current situation, the geopolitical response, impact on trade, and where do we go from here? Puna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Marcus. It's uh, it's really nice to be uh, on the other side of the uh, of the table um, uh, after a while. I remember doing the very first episode with you um, uh, as the host and me as the guest. Uh, it's really nice to kind of be back as a as a guest again. Um, I look forward to a very interesting conversation. Yeah, it's great to have you back as a guest. I'm really looking forward to uh, uh, sharing some of your opinions and insights with our listeners. Uh, we've just been having a chat before, and there's some great stuff in here, I can assure you. Um, so let's get this underway. And very simply, how on earth did shipping end up in this situation? Could you explain the history of the conflict in Yemen and put this into some kind of context? Yes, thank you so much. I think Yemen has always been a, a volatile uh, country um, in the 1990s. It actually unified the North and the South Yemen, um, unified as one country. Um, And there was a stable period for a while, um, till 2014. And 2014, um, the government which was elected um, was actually having a bit of a crisis when they reduced or cut the fuel subsidies and they faced a backlash from the the Houthis. Um, and they basically went again and rebelled against the established Yemeni government at the time, allegedly backed by Iran. Um, but they basically got the president to resign officially um, and the president had to flee. At this point of time, um, they started taking over, the Houthis started taking over large parts of Yemen, including the capital, Sana'a. Uh, the president, um, in inverted commas, um, recognized by the international community still, had to flee to Aden, the southern port town. And uh, and once he reached Aden, he actually went ahead and declared saying he never resigned and he's still the president. Um, And obviously it was uh, something that the international community is still recognizing in some cases um, as this president, as the official president of the Yemen. Hodeida, the other port on the western side of uh, Yemen, is now under Houthi control. Um, And it is probably one of the reasons why shipping has actually become a big part of this discussion. In 2015, the Saudis uh, got involved in the conflict at the request of the president of Yemen. Um, and then the, in, internally, it became a, a bigger challenge because the Gulf uh, Cooperation Council, um, GCC, got involved as well. Um, Iran officially backed the Houthis in 2015. Interestingly, the Americans had special troops on ground and so did UK, and both of them withdrew their troops in 2015, when the Saudi and the Iranians came into the play. In 2017, the Houthis actually bombed uh, or tried to bomb the uh, the Saudi airport uh, in Riyadh. And uh, that was uh, 
diverted by the Saudis and they realized that this is becoming a bigger threat. They decided to blockade Yemen altogether. And this is basically the genesis of the discussion. The blockade was very effective. Interestingly, a blockade was possible for the first time that all the air, sea and land transport was pretty much blocked. Land in some ways, but sea and air were definitely blocked by the Saudi uh, blockade. It became a huge humanitarian problem. A famine ensued in Yemen and the under UN uh, pressure, the blockade had to be ended. In 2022, five years afterwards, the UN actually brokered a ceasefire in Yemen. And there seemed to be some kind of a semblance of normalcy returning into, um, into Yemen. And then the current crisis happened. Um, you know, the Hamas um, ha launched an attack on Israel on 7th of October. Israel has counterattacked. And, and from 17th October onwards, the Houthis initially started bombing Eilat, which is the uh, port city in uh, Mediterranean, at the Red Sea of, of Israel, uh, the Red Sea port city. And of course, they were also, they were also lobbing missiles at Saudis um, and even Egyptians at the end of the day. Now, obviously, they decided that rather than putting stuff into the land, let us also strike some of the ships. And they started targeting. Um, and one thing I must say, I, I usually don't give opinions in this regard to this. But one of, the fun, one of the interesting ideas or one of the interesting insights is that the Houthis seem to be extremely knowledgeable in terms of which ship belongs to whom. They seem to have a lot of shipping insights in terms of beneficial ownerships of ships which ports is the ship sailed from, which is the cargo that she's carrying. So they started targeting any ships with Israeli interest or Israeli linkage, US or UK. Um, and obviously, as you mentioned, over 50 ships bombed. And, and this is the continuing discussion. Um, and this is where the problem really starts. In 2023, December, US, US and UK decided to put up the Prosperity Guardian operation, which basically looked at giving cover to ships I think it has been partly successful, but it's been a big challenge to actually really save because these Houthis are actually occupying pretty much the entire western seafront and the coastal area of Yemen, even some southern part as well. So this makes um, these ships easy targets at the end of the day. Um, obviously, now the military operations have started. The US, UK have actually gone ahead and put it out there. Um, they've started bombing certain uh, parts of uh, the Houthi strongholds. And this is only going to increase in terms of um, broadening the war scope. Where is the shipping getting involved in this? This is essentially shipping becoming uh, innocent bystander in this entire discussion. The only reason why these ships are being targeted is because of the fact that they are either linked or, or somehow connected with the interests of the countries where the Houthis are really looking to target um, in order to make a statement. Um, and their terms or their um, uh, their key demand is that the Israel and the Hamas conflict should end um, and only then their bombings will stop. So this is effectively very clearly the shipping stuck with a with a small um, conflict now becoming bigger and bigger and en enveloping the shipping space as well. You mentioned there about the, the strategic part about ports in this, um, both in Yemen and those are sort of on the Saudi side, targeting them. So could you explain a little bit more about the strategic role that ports and shipping are playing in this whole conflict? So um, I think having Hodeida as a port under their control, the Houthis have a place where they can take the ships, um, capture them and dock them 
and control them. Um, that is obviously one of the reasons why one of the ships is still under their control. I think the Galaxy Leader, um, which is still under their control um, in Hodeida port. Um, the other thing is that any ship that transits the Suez Canal and the Red Sea has to pass the Bab al-Mandeb. Bab al-Mandeb, uh, translated from Arabic, literally means the gate of grief or gate of tears. Very ironical to actually have a name like that. It's literally become the gate of grief and a gate of tears today for shipping community. Um, and the, the interesting part is that it's only 14 nautical miles wide from the Djibouti side to the Yemeni side. So if you're transiting a small gate of grief or tears with 14 nautical miles separating the two coasts and missiles kind of even inland, you can pretty much imagine the threat that you actually face. You can't go very fast in that small space and you have no uh, escape whatsoever. Um, and the Hodeira port is obviously is another place as I mentioned. Interestingly, um, the previous blockade has taught the Houthis to actually reskill, rearm, and replenish their weapons. Um, a lot of them, in, I believe, have actually been allegedly supplied by the Iranians, but also other countries have actually been involved in that discussion. The Bab al-Mandeb transits are actually 65% down, but they're still there at the moment. And the only reason why the strategic uh, aspect of the value of ports and shipping comes in is because the Houthis realize and the, um, the people controlling those territories realize that the alternative, alternative to going via the Suez Canal is the Cape of Good Hope. And that is simply too expensive and too challenging. Um, also remember that there are certain uh, liner companies which call these uh, Red Sea ports. You know, there are other countries on the Red Sea, the Egyptian Red Sea, um, the Israeli Red Sea, of course, the Jordanian Red Sea, the, um, the fact that there is Sudan, Ibuti, Ethiopia, Somalia, they're still being serviced by shipping lines and they have no option but to go to these places. Um, so shipping has unfortunately being a lifeline industry, providing uh, services to all these countries is also now at the receiving end of these challenges at the same time. But strategically, shipping and ports are playing a very important part in making a political statement and a geopolitical statement for both the Houthis as well as the Americans and the, and the Britishers. That's really interesting to see how that plays out strategically there. With this obviously isn't the only geopolitical conflict that uh, shipping has been caught up in in recent times. We've got the Russia-Ukraine conflict as well. How does this differ from that? So the Russia-Ukraine conflict is, uh, you know, I think you had mentioned this to me in a separate conversation that after a point of time, the war becomes a normal occurrence. You know, you somehow feel that this has been happening for a while. People need to kind of, um, you know, build it into their calculations and a discussion. So Russia-Ukraine conflict is very much a localized conflict in some ways because there is no direct intervention of any other countries um, except the Russia and the Ukrainians currently um, getting involved in the conflict. Yes, there is indirect um, uh, help and support coming from other countries, both to Ukraine and maybe even to Russia. But it's still very much a, a localized conflict, what I call a territorial battle at the end of the day, versus the conflict here in, in the Red Sea and is linked to another conflict, which is the Israel-Gaza conflict, uh, Israel-Hamas conflict. And the Israel-Hamas conflict is very much an ideological battle 
um, more than a territorial battle. Um, because of the fact that it's more complicated, because there are two battles linked to each other, at the same time, it's also very simple. If the other battle stops, the Israel-Hamas, this battle has no legs to stand on and will stop on its own, which is exactly why the brokered ceasefire in 2022 worked, because there was no conflict other than this that needed to be solved. And today, there is an alternate conflict which is influencing the Red Sea attacks. Um, and this is where the difference really lies. The Americans are fully in the battle now. They are actually physically bombing uh, spaces. They have actually lost people and personnel on the ground, both in Jordan as well as at sea. And this is something that really is um, potentially having a conflict which is widening as well. Because the Arab in the Middle Eastern world and the Iranians, although the fact is that the Chinese have actually brokered a ceasefire between Saudi and Iran, Saudi were actually in talks with uh, Israel before this to normalize the relationships, but that's all gone into a back um, uh, space now because there's really nothing that um, is dominating the conflict as much as the Israel-Hamas conflict. And that's why this conflict is potentially much more uh, wider uh, and has more potential of, of creating more complications for the industry as a whole. I also believe that the Russian-Ukrainian battle has got very specific commodity challenges. Um, but in case of the Red Sea attacks, it is commodities which are flowing from different parts of the world through a choke point into other parts of the world, which means all commodities, at least in theory, can get impacted by this conflict. Russia-Ukraine is only linked to those commodities where Russia and Ukraine are themselves involved uh, in either consuming or producing those commodities. This is where this conflict is much wider and much more challenging for um, the world as a whole. Okay, we're going to take that in two parts, I think. I'll come back to the commodities part of that and come first to the, like, the sort of wider conflict and other countries getting drawn in if they say it's specifically to protect shipping at, at this stage. Um, so you mentioned Operation Prosperity Guardian. You've had the U US and UK military action backed by some of their allies. We're seeing India getting involved in protecting ships to some degree, possibly the EU. But then if we look at the big Asian power, China, they seem to be staying well clear. Could you explain to our listeners what is happening here? Yeah, that's the very interesting part. You know, China was, um, was surprisingly the broker for a deal between Saudi and Iran, uh, which paved way for both Iran and Saudi Arabia to become the parts of the BRICS Plus or the BRICS Expanded BRICS Alliance, which is looking to uh, kickstart very soon. Um, and, and that was a big breakthrough, I, I believe, in, in, the, in the overall relationships as well as the stability of Middle East. Um, but China today is, uh, is kind of more an economic uh, player in this entire discussion. There are Chinese companies which are still doing business. Um, I know that China has actually a, a joint venture with the Saudi Arabians uh, ex, um, exporting pet coke and, and other oil commodities from the Jeddah uh, area in, in, in the Red Sea. So they are obviously continuing to protect their interests as such, but they're not getting involved in the military part of it. I think the military discussion has predominantly happened with America, UK, uh, France, Germany, now I believe the Danish uh, Navy is also sending some ships with the EU coming into play as well. I believe 17th of February, they actually are launching an operation uh, where they are uh, collaborating with the Americans and the Britishers uh, to do something out here. On the other hand, 
We actually have the other Asian powers. India, for example, has sent fleet into the Red Sea, into the um, into the Indian Ocean, uh, mostly to protect its own uh, ships. Piracy uh, is another challenge. They've actually rescued a couple of ships from the pirates, but they've also uh, helped bring some of the ships which were hit by missiles to port of refuge in India. And that has actually been one of the other aspects that India has played a proactive role. Um, at the same time, Pakistan has also been involved in uh, protecting some of its fleet on the merchant side. But militarily, nobody has really uh, played a bigger role. Interestingly, in the Prosperity Guardian, when you look at the number of countries which are part of the coalition, even Singapore is involved, but it doesn't have any ships there. Um, so is the Bahrainian and the and the other uh, people involved. Interestingly, Saudi Arabia has supported the operation, but not put any uh, assets on the ground as such. They are obviously supporting the um, Yemeni elected government, and they believe that that's uh, their part of the role that they're playing. But this is a hodgepodge of countries, and China has decided to stay out, at least militarily, but economically, I believe it's definitely playing a part in keeping the trade moving, both for Chinese and non-Chinese uh, uh, actors, as, I, as, as you speak, basically. Yeah. So quite a complex uh, situation, and it's interesting to get that background on uh, the actions of China um, within this. Now, turning more to the trade impact here, and one of the things about this is that essentially this blocks trade through the Suez Canal. Um, perhaps we can sort of look back. What happened the last time that the Suez Canal was closed for a long period of time? So it's no coincidence that the Hamas decided to attack um, uh, Israel um, on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. That was the last time the canal was closed for years. Um, and I think if you look back into that closure of the Suez Canal, the immediate short-term impact was the ships were rerouted via the Cape of Good Hope, which is basically a 75% increase in sailing time from Asia to Europe and vice versa. Um, obviously, huge cost implications for the parties. Um, and because of the fact that you were taking that much more time for performing these voyages, there was a huge contraction of supply of ships as well. But there's one big cha change uh, compared to the previous years. In that point of time, the oil prices spiked through the roof because Middle East was basically the major majority of supplier or the major supplier of oil to Americas. Um, and they were the principal um, reason why the oil embargo happened in the first place um, because of that particular um, uh, war happening with the Yom Kippur War. Now, this time around, America has actually had a very different perspective. Once the export ban was lifted by Obama, America has continuously upgraded its uh, production, uh, both of shale and crude oil from Gulf of Mexico. And today it is actually not a consumer of oil or net importer of oil, it's a net exporter of oil. And that's why even with all these crises, the Russia-Ukraine uh, scenario, the current Red Sea crisis, we are still not seeing the oil prices going through the roof, which is why its inflationary challenges are much more limited. This is a, a bit of a mercy at the moment for the economy because if the oil embargo or oil prices had skyrocketed uh, with these challenges, it would have really made a huge problem for the economic uh, climate of the globe as well. I think this time around it's a bit different, but that was a short term impact, a very big oil shock, and that created a huge issue with regard to how um, America viewed the, the oil as well. 
long term impact uh, medium to long term impact was basically this gave rise to scrapping of the old fuel guzzling ships and more eco ships came into play because people actually felt that they needed to do these long voyages and they needed to have more eco ships um interestingly the the source of the goods started changing the suppliers who were traditionally very solid and robust could not supply the goods either competitively or at all because of these choke points and because of the uh, suez canal closure and the asian importers the european importers had to look for local sources even if paying a bit more they started securing multiple supply sources going forward and obviously this changed the dynamics of the prices going forward and obviously a new building spree erupted because of this uh, um, shipping side and that created uh, a lot of interesting uh, opportunities for both the yards as well as the ship owners and ship operators but interestingly a lot of people have kind of not forgotten those days there is still a lot of bias in terms of dealing with certain suppliers and certain choke points and certain areas geopolitical um, memories remain in people's minds even today and that for me is something which will be another big discussion even if the current crisis goes away from red sea people will not forget it in a hurry they will still try and diversify their sources of supply and they will try and keep those sources of supply as diversified as possible because this can erupt once again and nothing is for sure so memories are the biggest impediments to the most economic flow of trade because they actually create barriers in people's mindsets more than the actual trade routes if you're enjoying the sea trade maritime podcast make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on the app of your choice now you talked there about the impact that the last closure of the Suez Canal had and that kind of long-term impact it had on trade patterns so if we look at what's happening now and taking into that sort of into account what impact does it have on the trade flows short medium and long term absolutely i first of all we need to list out the countries which are impacted by the red sea directly egypt is probably the biggest loser at this point of time um, you know suez canal tolls are about close to 10% of the gdp of the country uh, it's losing it in a big way today um, on top of that there doesn't seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel um it obviously is losing a lot and it potentially will more it's itself in a big challenge economic uh, space and obviously that's going to get worse sudan eritrea both red sea countries are dependent on aid cargoes and if aid cargoes are basically suffering or becoming more expensive this is going to have an impact of how much aid goes to these countries ethiopia is having its own internal challenges civil war challenges it is now going to create more problems for uh, importing and exporting the goods that it has djibouti has substantial chinese investments and they need to be serviced and china also exports uh, a lot of from djibouti out to china in terms of raw materials as well yemen is in complete chaos obviously that's going to create more volatility with regard to uh, already problematic areas jordan is a big supplier of of rock phosphate um and other uh, minerals to the world whether it is supplying to the mediterranean and europe countries not a problem but to asian countries the red sea blocked means its major supply uh, is going going away its markets are going to get diminished as well 
Israel, um, ILAT is of course going to get affected, um, but ILAT is a very small percentage of Israel's uh, trade. So obviously the challenge for it is more the safekeeping of the people in ILAT and the towns close by because the bombing from Houthis continues there. The Mediterranean countries are directly or indirectly going to get impacted. Turkey um, and, and Syria and a few other countries, they all used to use the Suez Canal to export into Asia. And that's not happening anymore. So please understand that this is already impacting the whole of Red Sea countries and also beyond that to the Mediterranean countries. They are directly impacting as such. So in the short term, there's higher costs because of rerouting. There is longer time taken. There is going to be greater emissions. So all these companies are going to miss their emission targets, whether you like it or not. Um, they are emitting a lot more by the fact that they are uh, guzzling more fuel. And of course, the risk still remains in terms of how do they actually keep these contracts going? Do they service these contracts? Do they increase the numbers? The freight costs are simply skyrocketing as well. The medium term impact, I believe, is going to be more like demand erosion. Because after a point of time, these the buyers will simply say, I can't afford these additional costs. I need to look for alternative sources. I need to look for alternative products if possible. Supply sources will change. I mentioned this to you. Jordan supplies rock phosphate to India. Today, there is a huge opportunity that Saudi Arabia may decide to increase its phosphate production. And Dammam may become a huge hub port selling phosphate to India. And India needs phosphate for fertilizers, for phosphoric acid, for a lot of other things. It's all about delivered cost. Um, I also see potentially force majeure situations happening in medium term. If this continues on for a while, there will be force majeures declared um, for sure. Long-term impact is, as I mentioned, the key is the, the saving grace is the lack of oil shock. The fact that the oil prices are still contained and reasonable, obviously this has created um, a huge advantage in terms of the global economy being a bit more stable. This will also mean that there is no need to go ahead and, and push for more eco ships because the prices are not going through the roof. Um, inflationary impact will be lower, but essentially the supply is getting contracted. So in long term, we will see that some of this fleet will actually come on board, especially the container ships which are being ordered and which are coming on stream at the moment may get absorbed in a much easy way because the supply is actually now much more uh, contracted uh, in terms of the fact that supply is, is tighter. And because of that, maybe the, the new ships coming may not actually face a big challenge that they could face otherwise. So this can be interesting for the shipping industry, um, but the people who are going through the Red Sea, the seafarers, the assets, the companies, um, it's actually a big challenge um, for them and will continue to remain so. Interestingly, um, one of the ships that recently got attacked on the 12th of February was the Star Iris. And the ironical part is that they were actually carrying corn from Brazil to Iran on a US-owned bulker, which is basically controlled in Greece. Now, this is a, a very interesting space. It's a US-listed company, Starbull Carriers. The, parent, uh, the controlling beneficial ownership is probably in Greece. The cargo was actually coming from Brazil and going to Iran, who is actually allegedly backing up the same people who bombed the ship uh, at the end of the day. So, you know, this is where geopolitics creates the most ironical situations in the world. And trade flows are bound to get affected by this. It's a developing story. 
and I really don't know how long it can uh, it can go on. But I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel till the Israel-Hamas conflict continues. Yeah, yeah that, that that last example you quoted there with the Starbuck ship just illustrates just how complex this actually is uh, from from the his perspective of the shipping side, and this question of you know what ship is safe to go through. Um, now you kind of listed a lot of countries that are quite directly impacted in the region there. When we come to that sort of billion dollar question, you know, you said there you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel until the end of the Hamas-Israeli conflict. Is there some solution that could come from the region, given the number of countries that are being impacted in that area? Yeah, I, I think the GCC um, has a big role to play, but GCC is divided in Yemen as well, because GCC recognizes the um, the Yemeni leadership before the Houthis uh, took over. Um, so there is a conflict in GCC itself. So it's not really able to unify itself. Iran has um, uh, its own agenda in that sense to work with. So the unification is, is a challenge. Um, the only country which actually has most at stake is really um, Egypt. Um, and I think they are pushing or they'll have to push harder in, in that sense. I read somewhere that, you know, the Middle East um, question can only be answered by Middle East themselves. Um, it's very difficult for outsiders to go and take a uh, take a call on this. The only reason why Americans and the, and the Britishers are in there is because they are having lives at stake now. They've lost people and they've lost assets themselves. Um, so that is the reason why they are um, keen on, on building that uh, safe haven uh, for, for ships. But... I think they cannot solve the problem militarily. Uh, this has to be solved by um, uh, solving the Israeli-Hamas uh, challenge. Um, and as I said, till that point of time, we will not see uh, a big change. Um, interestingly, there are there are basically um, you know people on both sides of the coin. Um, the Hamas um, still have hostages, um, and and Israelis still want to basically try and and, and get an upper hand in some form or the other. So there is some kind of cards up everybody's sleeve. Um, hopefully, they decide to kind of uh, take a breather at some point of time and, and do something about it, because this is obviously going to have an impact um, in, in medium to long term. And once the numbers start trickling in, uh, maybe the next quarterly GDP update of these countries will actually be a factor. Um, and then maybe the wider impact to the Mediterranean countries and the global GDP impact that IMF may be able to bring about. Maybe it'll take three to six months to get this out there for people to realize this is serious. It's going to affect your pocket and my pocket. Let's do something about it. That's the hope I have. And hopefully that's the only solution that comes up basically. Well, hopefully that is a scenario that plays out and we do get a solution to this in the not too longer term. Um, it doesn't look like we're going to get something immediate, um, certainly based on the scenarios you've described. Pune, I thank you so much for taking the time. Well, we could have talked about this for hours, I'm sure. But we probably will over coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. This was much longer than the usual podcast, but hopefully um, it kind of gave a perspective. Um, it's also something that I find extremely useful in terms of all the teaching and training that I do in this particular topic at various universities. Um, so thank you so much for the opportunity, Marcus. Always a pleasure. Well, thank you, and thank you for taking the time to talk to our listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast. Mm -hmm.